the PGA Tour and the four majors have been the gold standard in professional golf. And there really hasn't been competition for the PGA. The LIV, the Saudi-backed tournament, has used money and a potential better lifestyle for the players. Mike Wong, the new CEO of the USGA, he and the board were faced with a tough decision. The PGA had banned LIV players from playing in their events, and the USGA represents the United States in golf, but their tournament is open to world players, allowed the LIV players to participate in their upcoming tournament. The podcast you're about to hear is again listening to Mike Wong, who came from the LPGA after turning that around and brings the type of leadership and vision that is needed when there's potential conflict. Our guest, Mike Wong. Welcome, friends. Mike Wong, the former commissioner of the LPGA, did things in women's golf that were landmark in terms of more tournaments, global recognition, and his ability to connect with the players. He gave each player his cell phone number, and he connected with them, and he helped them understand how they could improve the game and have ownership of it. So, Mike, what you did there and your route to becoming the commissioner, which was not the traditional way to, to get a job, would like to unpack that a little bit with our guests, talk about what that journey was like, and uh, how you've impacted the game of golf. It's incredible. Well, nobody knows that journey better than you, Jed. I remember sitting <laughs> on a on a busy uh, standstill traffic day on the I-5 in California when you gave me the call and said, I think I got your next gig, the LPJ commissioner. I think my immediate response is, I'm not the one you're looking for. I had just made uh, three promises to my wife. We'd sold the business. And for the first time in my life, I I left the closing and somebody wire transferred money into my account. It's uh, I felt like such an adult. I took my wife to dinner and after a couple of glasses of red wine, I made her three promises, which I think she's probably put in a frame somewhere to haunt me forever. But I promised her we'd never leave Southern California because I know that's where she wanted to live and raise the kids. I promised her that um, I was never going to take a job again that traveled as much as I used to because that was so hard on the family. And I promised her I was going to take one full year off of work. And uh, after your phone call, I broke all three promises. Well, it wasn't an easy decision. I mean, uh, when we think about the fact, I remember landing out in, in L.A. or in San Francisco, getting ready to pitch a search, and all of a sudden you say, well, I don't think I'm going to do it. And then and then you ended up talking to, to Charlie Meacham, uh, and um, he helped you get to the, the 18th hole. Yeah, you know, when I got the job offer, uh, I went through, you know, all the – personal, selfish things, which is, I'd love this job. Uh, golf's been important to me. I started as a caddy. I worked in what they call the bunker boy on the grounds crew. And then I've, I've, uh, I've changed whole locations. I've, I've cut aprons. I've cut fairways. I've put in drainage ditches. I've done everything on a golf course that those kids you see in the hard hat. I always say, when you're playing golf and you see one of those kids in a hard hat in a bunker, go give them a hug. I was that person at one time. So golf's always been special to me. I spent some time at Wilson and TaylorMade. So I wanted to do this job. Um, I really felt that this could be my chance to kind of give back to the game that's been good to me. And then I went through the the uh, the personal side, 
My wife loved California. My kids were in junior high and high school. I remember when the note that I sent to the board that you probably remember, I wrote that I'm sure there is no tombstone that says, here lies a great commissioner and a fantastic father. It's going to say one or the other. And I know myself well enough that I'm going to do whatever it takes to say, here lies a great commissioner. And the great father thing probably what takes the back seat. So I remember in the email I wrote to the board, I just said, I hope you're looking for a commissioner in 10 years, because when 10 years from now, when my kids are gone, I don't care. This would be a great job for me. But right now, I just don't think this can fit into my family life. And I remember how long it took me to hit the send button because I, I really wanted the job, but um, I just thought it was the right thing to do. So I hit send. And the next day, they had Charlie Meacham, a former commissioner, called me. And Jed, you'd love this story. He said to me, Mike, I Googled you before I called you. And I read an article where you said the most important thing in fatherhood is to teach your kids how to follow their passion. And I said, yeah, I said, you know, my dad was pretty good at that, but a few small comments along the way changed my career path. And he said, well, let me tell you something about teenagers. You may think they stop listening to you, but they're watching you. And if you say that this is your dream job, and if you think dream jobs for them are going to come at the right time or the right place or in the right city, um, dream jobs don't happen that way. Um, you have to make some sacrifices and you're going to teach your kids by your actions that you really don't follow your passion. You do the sensible thing. You do the family thing. Or you're going to teach them, we'll make it work. You follow your dreams, you follow your passion, and everything else you know, follows that. And I got off the phone with them. I looked at my wife, and I must have had a funny look on my face because she looked at me and said, are we moving to Florida? And I said, I think we're moving to Florida. So Charlie's become a great friend ever since. I probably talked to him once a week for the last 12 years. It's, he's been a great mentor. Just your route. When you look at commissioners of other sports, they usually grow up in the sport. Uh, they weren't they weren't trained at at, at Procter and Gamble. Uh, they didn't have a branding background. They didn't work uh, in other large corporations or work for a unique entrepreneurial owner that started Mission Hockey. So I mean, you've been <laughs> and then you worked in the dental. I mean, you've kind of had this complex uh, journey to build this pedigree that came into the commissioner's role unconventional. When I got the offer from the selection committee, I was very uh, honest when I said, I'm not sure I'm the right guy. I've never run a team of athletes. Um, I'm an average golfer. I, don't, I haven't sold international TV rights. Um, so why do you look at me and think that I could be the commissioner of the LPGA? And, and so one of the board members at the time said, you've told us all the reasons you wouldn't be good at the job. Where would you be good at the job? Which I thought was a great comeback. And I said, honestly, the only thing, the only time I'm going to be comfortable in this job is sitting across the table for somebody who's considering spending four million a year for the next four years on us. I've been that person my whole life, whether it was running the Crest brand or TaylorMade or Adidas or Mission Tech. I've written checks to every sport in the world. I've been a sponsor at all different levels. I remember a $100 million deal, $10 million a year with the Yankees with Adidas. And so, so I said, I understand what it's like to write a big check to a sport and then try to explain to your board why that check is going to be good for your business. That, that world is really comfortable to me. And, and this woman who was the former head of Pepsi said, that's exactly why we're interested in you. Because we have a lot of people who know how to run a golf tournament or sell TV rights or know how high a fairway should be cut. We have very few people in the building that know what it feels like to be our customer. And when you run a company where customer awareness is your weakness, your company's in trouble. And so to her credit, she said, what you just defined is exactly why we're interested in you. And in fairness, in 12 years as commissioner, the place I was always the most comfortable was sitting across the table from somebody who was writing us a check and knowing what that person was going to not only feel like at the moment they were writing the check, 
but more importantly, what they were going to feel like when they walked onto their tournament course on day one and how things had to be right. I, I relate to that person. I spent a lot of time making sure that our players and our caddies and our staff understood what it felt like to be our customer, not just what it felt like to be an athlete. So when you, th- when you look back on your legacy as commissioner, what are the two or three things that you really feel like you did that really impa- impacted the brand, impacted the game, impacted the players? I think there was probably three, Jed. I mean, the first was um, the LPGA, when I met it at the end of 2009, was going global. And I always tell people the, the process of taking your brand global is really miserable in the beginning. It's great at the end when you wake up with customers and sponsors and fans and websites all over the world. But going global is uncomfortable. It's kind of like going into a tunnel on a train. At the beginning, it gets really dark. And every fiber of your body says, go back to where you knew. And the LPJ was kind of at the, should we go back? We've got players coming in from all over the world. Not everybody speaks the language. We don't really know how to generate sponsors from those countries. And everybody's just asking us to go back to you know 1984, where we drove to all of our golf tournaments. And they were all in America. And it was pretty easy for me as a guy who had taken other brands global to say, you're exactly where you should be. You're in the uncomfortable, dark phase of going global. But let me tell you what the other side looks like. So I think for me, helping them from where they were to the other side of the, of the tunnel, if you will, where we woke up with, we sell our TV rights now to 190 countries. We play events in 18 different countries in 22 different states. We, we have players from 50 different countries playing on one of the tours of the LPGA. So we woke up with a really global sport. And as you know, for a guy who spends a lot of time in sports, every sport I know is trying to be more global. As good as the NBA is, they wish they were selling their TV rights in more countries. As good as the NFL is, one game in London's not giving them TV rights sales all over the world. So we kind of woke up with this real global model. And quite frankly, other sports would call me pretty regularly and say, how'd you get there? Like, how'd you pull this off? I mean, selling your TV all over the world. So one was that. The second one we talked about, which was we created something, Jed, called the customer profile card. So I probably have one sitting around here. But when you sign up as an athlete and you walked into an LPJ event, there'd be, uh, this isn't it, but you'd get this five by seven card. And at the top, it was always the same headings. And it would say, Who's writing the check this week? I never said who's the title sponsor, what's the name of the tournament. I wanted the players to think about somebody sat at their desk and wrote us a check for $4 million. If it wasn't for that check, you'd be home playing in a member member for a set of ping irons. But we're here playing for $2 million, televised all around the world. So then it would talk about what's important to that person who wrote the check. What do they need to get out of this week? And I would say to players and caddies, you don't have to read the card, but if you want to be helpful, Figure out what our customers are looking for this week. Do what you've got to do to win the tournament. But here's a few things you could do. And on the, that card always came with one unsigned thank you note. So I'd ask the players that one day, one time a week, write a handwritten thank you note to the check writer. Just a note to say, hey, thank you. On behalf of all the women on tour, we know you could be supporting a lot of sports. We thank these. And I got to tell you, Jed, that little one thank you card turned out to be a game changer for the LPGA because we had sponsors like Kia and HSBC and, you know, that, that sponsored everything. And the CEO would say to me, I've never received a thank you note from an athlete in my life. And I sponsor and they would rattle off a bunch of sports. Sure. And I would say, what do you do with the thank you notes? And most of them always had a funny answer. But I remember one guy saying, I have this drawer in my desk that I've just allocated to all your silly notes. I can't throw them away because they're pretty cool, but I can't really display them. And I thought if we could have, a, if we could have one drawer of every Fortune 500 CEO's desk, we got a huge advantage. So this little um, give back thing uh, turned out to be turned out to be plenty. And quite frankly, I think at the end of the day, the two things that I, I feel most proud of are those two. The last one that I was going to mention is we really changed the future of the game. You know, when I joined the LPGA, 
a, a, a little less than 20% of junior golfers were girls. So the future of the game wasn't going to be any more female than the current game, which was about 80, 20 male to female. Today, about 40% of junior golfers are girls. So the future of this game is going to look very close to 50-50. And if you jump back 12 years ago, the future of this game didn't look very female. And those three things, going international, TV rights, getting the, the athletes and the caddies to accept who the check writers were each week, uh, and really funneling a lot of what we did into the future of the game, those are the three things that I think um, help separate us from other sports. You also pushed to try to get equal prize money. So how, how do you think that's going to play its way out? Well, I think the good news is, you know, I didn't, um, I didn't spend a lot of time comparing ourselves to the guys simply because the guys are a moving target and whatever happens in their world happens in their world. They get their own TV deals. Um, what I really tried to push for is I just, I worked with our sponsors and new ones and said, if you're one of the best 200 golfers on the planet, female golfers on the planet, do you think you ought to be able to make a living doing that? And every everybody would say, of course. Which is, I said, so let's kind of walk through this. And, you know, our 120th best player in the world made less money than it cost her to play on tour. Can't we together fix that? Because you would never ask an employee to work for you and not make more money than it was costing to do the job. I'm just asking you to help me do the same thing. And so we would slowly, so we were actually spending less time talking about the number one player, which is what the media talks about and how much money she makes on course and off course and everything else. Because if I could raise purses, she's going to make more money. But if I could also raise purses, I was going to make the ability to actually pursue this dream more of a, more of a realistic goal. If you were the, when I started, if you were the hundredth best player on the PGA tour, you made a million dollars. And when I started, we had one player on tour making a million dollars. You know, when I left, I think we had 25 players making more than a million dollars on tour, but we still weren't up to the point where if you were one of the best hundred players in golf, you could actually make a really good living, but we're well on the way now. You've taken a new role. You've come in as the CEO of the United States Golf Association. Right. And again, you're breaking tradition. I mean, you don't have the blue blazer on. It's behind the glass if I need it. You bring a different way to look at golf from the traditional perspective. So how are you going about approaching that with your board, uh, with with your various stakeholders? Yeah, I have this unique. It's kind of funny. I, I didn't realize this when I was younger, but I, I think you'll get this, Jed, both, Jed, both in your own world and the people you've recruited. At 55, 56, you go through this change in your life where you say, um, I, probably got, I probably got one more good run in me. You know, whether that's true or not, that's what I believed. And, and I also feel the urgency of, and I don't have 20 years to get there. So, you know, when you're 35 or you're 45 and you're a new CEO, you can kind of think about longer term, you know, glide paths. I looked at, when I sat across from the USGA board, I said, guys, I'm 55. I'm not going to be doing this when I'm 65. So here's your, here's your challenge. If you bring me in, I'm going to have a five or six year window to make real change that I think is important for the game of golf. If you don't feel comfortable in real change in five or six years, man, I'm the wrong person for you because I'm going to bring a sense of urgency to this that um, that's probably built into me anyway. I mean, I'm highly caffeinated, as you know, and I don't like talking about sleeping on it and talking about tomorrow. I'd rather make a decision, make a mistake and fix it. What's really important to me, uh, Jed, is, and I said this to the board from the first time I met him, I love what the USGA does for this game, whether it's governing the game through rules, uniting the game through world handicapping systems and course ratings, whether it's showcasing the best players in 14 championships or advancing the game for the future, I'm really proud of how many ways the USGA touches the game. What I felt was missing from the USGA and really missing from golf 
were big, bold, 30 and 50 year initiatives. The things you hang on the wall and say, I don't know how we're going to get there, but by gosh, we're going to start today. What I've challenged my board is I told them by the time we get together in February of next year, I'm going to show them what I call the five commandments. And they're going to be five kind of 30 year out thoughts of, I don't really care how we leave the game in five years. The game's in great shape. And I love where we are right now as, as a sport. But when I was a kid, bowling is where golf is. And it was on TV every Saturday and Sunday for six hours. It was, it was what people were watching. It was what you read about in the paper. And I don't see that today. So you can't live on the top of the world of sports and feel like it's going to be there in 30 years unless you think 30 years out. So I'm going to really make sure that we at the USGA have bold initiatives that address water crisis long term, that address how young kids in America can actually progress their career relative to other kids in other countries. I'm going to figure out how to, uh, how to um, endow all these amateur championships. So no matter what happens in world economic setbacks, crises, and those kind of things, our amateur championships can't go away. I'm going to build big, aggressive plans on diversity, making sure that the face of this game looks more like the face of America. And I don't know how I'm going to achieve all those things, but I'm going to slide a lot of chips on the table, put a lot of, uh, put a lot of effort behind it, and make sure that we build plans that 30 years from now can ensure that golf is even healthier than it is today. I think the only thing I can do in my final run in golf is to make sure my kids' kids have a better game than I had. And if we can achieve that, then I think it'll be time well spent at the USGA. Any surprises since you've joined the organization? I'm surprised at the at the breadth of uh, of USGA impact. I mean, there was there was things I knew. I mean, Mike Davis was a friend, and we sat on a lot of the same boards. But I never really realized the levels at which you know whether it's at golf course levels, agronomy levels, international levels that the USGA was really engaging in the sport. Generally, when you're the commissioner of a of a league or a tour like I was, you're pretty focused on on those initiatives and some future initiatives. But the rest of the game, you don't get into handicapping and course ratings and agronomy, and it's just it, uh, you kind of you got to get to the next week, and so it's interesting to me all the different ways in which uh, the USGA can touch can touch the sport and help the sport. It's um, it's exciting to me because I feel like the uh, the scope, the breadth of of where we can get involved is pretty significant, and I feel uh, I feel the responsibility that with this much uh, with this much scope and responsibility, you can't um, you can't idle. Like I just don't feel comfortable that I don't want to deliver back a USGA in five years. That's what I had when when I walked in here in July. So I feel the responsibility and the urgency to uh, to make sure that we're we're pushing for a better game long term. So your commercial mindset and background, sitting across from sponsors and so forth, how can you utilize that in this role? You know, no different than what I came from when I was at the LPGA. I said for seven years publicly that if I was at the USGA, I'd find some corporate support and uh, and jack up the women's versus the U.S. Women's Open. Uh, now I now I sit in that chair, so I can't divorce myself from what I was screaming for the last seven years. But I, the good news for me is the corporate interest in supporting the USGA's initiative is significant. We have you know really strong corporate partners today that not only spend a lot with us, but they're really committed to what the USGA is trying to achieve. And I want to make sure that they can get involved in more parts of it, not just the U.S. Men's Open or not just the amateur or not just, you know, handicapping system. If you want to be partnered with us to take golf to the next level, I want to find room for you to, to get on the wagon with us. And I think the good news is, having only been here a short period of time, there's no lack of interest from the corporate side to make sure that golf is, uh, that golf is thriving for the decades to come. Mike, I really appreciate you taking time and visiting with our guests and talking about 
what you've done for women's golf and what you plan to do for the USGA. So thanks for taking the time. And as always, it's uh, really good to catch up and listen to your enthusiasm and, and the way you inspire people. So thank you. Well, I hope your listeners know how lucky they are. I'll say this to you, Jed, that I've never said this to you either on a phone call or publicly, but there's not a lot of, there's not a lot of voicemails that I return on the same day every day, but uh, Jed Hughes is one of them. I, I appreciate your passion. I love, how the, I love how much you cared about me and then my career, but in that order. Um, and I love your insight into the, you know, into sport. And I think you, uh, you taught me that it was okay to bring my, uh, to bring my 16 year old quarterback mentality uh, into the boardroom. Um, because I think there's, you know, you, as, as Condoleezza Rice said to me one time, nothing I learned about leadership ever happened in a classroom. It happened out on a field leading my peers and nothing I ever learned about leadership ever happened in a classroom. And, and you were the guy that taught me it was okay to not only say that out loud, but to bring the huddle into the boardroom. And that's, uh, that's changed a lot in my life to know that I had the freedom to do that. Well, that's kind of you to say that. I really respect and, and appreciate the kind words. So thank you.